But it's a particular honour to, to give a lecture in memory of, uh, of Tom Johnson. When uh, Johnson died in 1965, the Scotsman newspaper said in its obituary that he was, quote, the greatest Scotsman of modern times and the one who did most for his country, unquote. Uh, and it's an accolade that he earned through some half a century of public service as editor of the, uh, the Independent Labour Party Journal Forward, as an ILP MP, as a Member of Parliament for Stirling Clackman and West, as Lord Privy Seal, as, in my estimation, the finest of all Secretaries of State for Scotland during World War II, and then after the war as Chair of the Forestry Commission, the Scottish Tourist Board, and crucially for this evening, the Scottish Hydro Electricity Board. He was a great man, a great Scot, and I'm particularly delighted that one of his relatives, Anne Yule, is uh, with us here this evening. You are particularly welcome to the proceedings, sir. Now, I've got in, uh, in the drawing room at Butte House uh, this picture, which I hope by now is up on the, uh, the screen, or uh, I'm getting a nod, it is now good. Uh, and uh, the reason it's there is uh, a few reasons. It's, uh, I like to have pictures in Butte House where you can, you can tell a story uh, around, the, uh, around the picture. And I got it off the portrait gallery a couple of years back, uh, I exchanged it for a, a Ramsay of, uh, of Lord Butte, uh, a Ramsay which uh, is worth some £20 million, incidentally. Uh, it's a wonderful full-length portrait. Uh, I, and I'd just like to say that that Ramsay is in the portrait gallery now. It's not, as some people would say, been a casualty of the exigencies of the Scottish budget over the last uh, <coughs> two years. But in return, uh, I got a, a number of uh, paintings from the the portrait gallery, and, uh, and one of them was a, a picture of, uh, of Tom Johnson. The, when Tom Johnson accepted <coughs> the uh, post of, uh, of Secretary of State for Scotland in 1941 as Churchill was forming his wartime cabinet, he, he noted in his uh, diaries a fairly magnificent uh, exchange <coughs> between uh, the Prime Minister and, and Johnson. Winston Churchill to Johnston. What ails you about joining the national government? Johnston, well, for one thing, I want to get out of partisan politics and write books. Write books? What kind of books? History books, said Johnston. Churchill, history? Good heavens, man, come in here and help me make history. <laughs> so that wasn't a bad invite to become, uh, to become Secretary of State for, for Scotland. Churchill promised uh, Johnston, unfailingly, that... Uh, his writ would run in Scotland, that Churchill wouldn't interfere with the decisions that Johnston made as Secretary of State for Scotland. And, and Churchill wanted Johnston in the Cabinet as a, 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 a formerly a, an independent Labour Party MP, a Clydesider, incredibly well in with the shipyard unions. Uh, Churchill feared a, a strike in the Clyde, as there had been in the, the First World War, of course, and thought that Johnston was just a man to avoid such eventuality. Uh, so Churchill promised Johnston that if he accepted the commission as Secretary of State for Scotland, uh, then his writ would run in Scotland. That, that promise lasted about a week. <laughs> Churchill was not one of life's greatest devolvers or delegators. So Johnston came up with a, a stratagem. He, he formed a, a Council of State for Scotland. This was on way, way, way before a, a, a Scottish Parliament was uh, considered. And the Council of State for Scotland was to contain all previous extant Secretaries of State for Scotland. Uh, so they were put on the Council of State for Scotland and the deal between Johnston and Churchill was if the Council of State for Scotland accepted a Johnston proposal, 
then Churchill as Prime Minister would accept it. And if the Council of State for Scotland did not support the Secretary of State, then the Secretary of State would give way. That was the deal. And it was an elegant suggestion to which the Prime Minister uh, agreed. There was one fly in the ointment. And that is that in 1909, as editor of Forward, the Independent Labour Party magazine, Johnson had written a tract called Our Noble Families, which was a bestseller, and so it had sold hundreds, hundreds of thousands of copies. And Our Noble Families went through the aristocratic families of Scotland, one by one, family by family, and explained in great detail how they'd sold the nation since 1707, how they'd expropriated the people, how they'd cleared the land, uh, and left each and every family without a name. It was even, you know, in comparison to my speeches, uh, uh, an extravagant, <laughs> an extravagant text and a bestseller had gone to something like seven editions by 1941. The problem, of course, was that the people that Johnson was inviting into his Council of State for Scotland were the self-same noble families that he'd <laughs> that he'd torn apart in his best-selling tract. Now Johnston's solution uh, was empirical and uh, practical. Wouldn't be available to anyone today in the days of the internet when anything anyone says anytime, anywhere is taken down and used in evidence against you forever. But that wasn't the situation in 1941. Uh, Johnston had a young press officer called Alistair Dunnett, uh, later editor of the Scotsman newspaper, chairman of Thomson Oil, Husband of Dorothy Dunnett, the, the novelist, a, a great man in his own right in, uh, in Scottish public life. Uh, and Johnston gave Alistair the job of going around Scotland buying up every available copy of our noble families. Johnston withdrew his own book from circulation. <laughs> and Alistair Dunnett told me this story a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, uh, and told me absolutely. And so I said, well, you know, how could that work? I mean, they must have known the book existed. To which Alistair replied that the aristocratic families of Scotland were not among the greatest readers in the nation. <laughs> and Sarah said, well, certainly, what happened to all the books? And Alistair said, well, that's a good question, because Johnston, by principle, would never destroy a book. So all of the books were kept in Johnston's house, <laughs> and he had a room in his house which had nothing but copies of our noble families stacked up. <laughs> And anyway, this uh, practical solution worked. Uh, the, uh, the aforesaid former Secretary of State for Scotland accepted the invitation to join the Council of State. And by and large, on the whole, uh, this arrangement uh, survived the, uh, the course of the war uh, as Johnston mobilised Scotland for the war effort. But in doing so, left an extraordinary uh, stamp on Scottish politics. Johnston realised that once he'd accepted the, the Churchill Commission, he might be able to achieve a few things. Uh, a new council for industry, which is part of the Scottish Council development in industry uh, these days. Improvements to forestry, which is the formation of the, the Forestry Commission. Better health care provision. The Embryo National Health Service in Scotland was instigated by Tom Johnson. And as he put it in his memoirs, quote, a jolly good try, a public corporation on a non-profit basis to harness Highland water power for electricity. Uh, and these were the significant achievements of uh, John, uh, Tom Johnson's rather brief tenure as Secretary of State for Scotland from 1941 to 1945. All of that, and of course, 
mobilising for the war effort at the same time. Not everything that Johnston did was an unrivaled success. He had a scheme for eradicating the midge. <laughs> and in 1942, when it was uh, realised and discovered that the malaria was, uh, was killing more soldiers than the Japanese ever could hope to in the Far East, uh, Johnston volunteered some 20,000 acres of Loch Lomond side for an experiment of the wartime equivalent of Agent Orange, uh, a defoliant which uh, zapped Loch Lomond side on the principle, well two principles, one if it worked against the midge it would work against the mosquito, uh, and secondly if you could eliminate the midge as Johnston thought then tourism in the highlands of Scotland and Persia for that matter would boom forever uh, thereafter. What happened to that experiment is it worked for a time, uh, for about three or four weeks, the, uh, the, the fern was defoliated, there were no midges, and after about a month, all the midges spilled over and came back again. And the conclusion of the experiment was the only limitation uh, on the midge population of Scotland was the food supply. That's you and me. <laughs> uh, so not everything that Johnson turned his hand to was an unqualified success, but when it came to the hydroelectric board, it most certainly was. In October 41, with the support of the Council, uh, Johnson established an inquiry under Lord Cooper, Lord Justice Clark, to investigate the potential for hydroelectricity in the Highlands. In January 1943, the Hydroelectric Development Scotland Bill received its first reading. And 70 years ago, this very week, it was at its Commons Committee stages and it passed into law later that year. Now what I want to do tonight is to reflect on the consequences of that legislation, its impact on Scotland's Highlands and Islands, its legacy as Scotland's first large-scale source of renewable energy, and the example it sets of Scotland's natural resources being used to improve the well-being of Scotland's people. In simple statistics, <coughs> what was achieved immediately after World War II is impressive. Between 1945 and 1965, 78 dams were built, 2,000 miles of tunnel were evacuated, and more than 20,000 miles of electricity network were established. The Hydro Boys, as they were known, had to work in remote locations, dangerous conditions. Their achievement transformed, though, the quality of life of people in the north of Scotland. When electricity came to the island of Iona in 1957, the Times newspaper hailed an end to the flickering paraffin in the teeth of the winter gale. As people look forward to electric lighting and domestic appliances, it reported, tonight the lights at least will flash on and 25 of the island's 60 houses already wired for power, with another 25 are waiting impatiently for the coming electrician. Nothing much has changed. <laughs> As that report tells us, Electricity was not brought to the, the Highlands in a, a single go. It was brought year by year, community by community, but the progress was rapid and impressive. I said uh, a few minutes ago that, that Johnston's portrait hangs in, the, uh, in the, uh, the drawing room at Butte House, and it's there because of that wonderful story about uh, our noble families and, uh, and his council of state. But it's there for another reason. It's there as a, an inspiration. Because what we salute as obvious, essential, magnificent social progress at the distance of, uh, of 70 years, of course, was much con more controversial uh, in the time. Because the opposition that we've had and have 
occasionally here and there to wind energy of Scotland is as of nothing. Nothing at all compared to the opposition to hydroelectric power in Scotland in the 1950s. We remember now the impact and the transformational ability of mobilising the resources of remote communities to put into work for these communities, of bringing the ability to, uh, to extend the benefits of uh, modern appliances and civilization to remote communities, to make it possible to reverse the long-term decline of rural depopulation in the Highlands and Islands. All of that to most people today, to the tens, the hundreds of thousands of tourists who swarm to see these magnificent constructions of the 40s, 50s and 60s as some of the great landmarks of the Highlands of Scotland. All of that is from our perspective of today. Back in the 1940s, things were considerably different. After the, the switch on in Iona, uh, Tom Johnson was reported as saying the biggest boon of all from electricity might be greater than economic sustainability for the island which might now be able to welcome more than 50,000 tourists. Iona now receives 100,000 tourists a year. The population of the Highlands and Islands had reached its lowest point, 300,000 in 1961. The next decade saw the reversal of that downward trend, which with one or two interruptions has now had been evident for 100 years or more. Now, as we know from the recent census results, the population of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland is at its highest for more than a century. The population change has many different causes, and of course we all know that challenges still exist uh, to rural communities in terms of their sustainability. But at the very least, we can argue that the work of the Hydro Board was influential in creating new opportunities for, for these communities. The results of that are evident today in economic investment uh, as well as population increases. A couple of weeks ago, Cap Gemini, the, the French major international consultancy and technology provider, announced it was, it was providing a, a global centre for excellence in Inverness with potential to create 500 new jobs in the next three years. The last uh, few months have seen investments from the uh, American life science company Dactari, from LifeScan, the, the uh, diabetes arm of Johnson & Johnson, who are going to conduct all, all of their research into diabetes, the third most prevalent health condition in the world from the Highlands of Scotland, from BSA, BSSF at Callanish, who are producing the purest extract of omega oil, uh, that giant uh, chemical company uh, with its furthermost flung factory and beside the Callanish stones. So these announcements highlight the, the fact that there are now companies across the globe who recognise that the Highlands and Islands of Scotland are a fantastic place to live, to work invest. I would submit that is a legacy of the Hydroelectric Development Scotland Act of 1943. And 70 years on from the Act, Scotland is at the start of a, a, a new renewable energy revolution. Last year, renewable energy produced the equivalent of almost 40% of Scotland's total electricity demand. Approximately one-third of that came from hydropower uh, and two-thirds came from other renewable resources, principally onshore wind power. Since 2000, the amount of energy generated from these other renewable sources has increased more than 30-fold. As I said, most of that increase is from onshore wind. 
However, Scotland, as we look to the future, has 10% of uh, the European Union's wave power potential, 25% of its offshore wind and tidal power potential. Offshore wind is uh, on the cusp of commercial viability. We recently consented the Aberdeen Bay Offshore Wind Demonstration Project. Marine Scotland's licensing and operations team are considering four offshore wind applications with a total generating capacity of just under 4,000 megawatts, uh, enough to supply almost half of the homes in Scotland. By 2020, we believe that uh, renewable energy can account for 100% of Scotland's gross electricity demand. By 2030, as offshore wind becomes even more important and commercial development of wave and tidal power begins, it should be possible to double that again, given our known offshore capacity and output. All of this may sound ambitious, but it certainly is achievable, just as it was achievable in 1943 for Tom Johnson to propose a scheme which would bring electricity to more than 90% of the highlands and islands by 1960. The lessons from 1943 uh, for the current day. The first uh, is that the development of hydroelectric power required clear leadership and a sense of direction. There was nothing inevitable about the success. It met with significant resistance, as I mentioned. The idea of amenity, the benefit and pleasure people gained from existing hydro highland landscape, was one used by many of hydropower's opponents. But Johnson built up a coalition of support. As he noted in the passage of the Hydroelectric Development Act marked the first time since the Reform Bill of 1832 that a major Scots measure had reached the statute book without a division in the House of Commons. And Johnson did this partly by making changes in response to reasonable concerns. For example, all hydro schemes had to be approved by Parliament and all of them were required to take account of environmental considerations, such as, for example, the impact on fish, scots, fish stocks. Pitlochry is a, an excellent example of how effective that can be. When work on the, the dam at Pitlochry started, it was so unpopular that hydroelectric workers were refused admission to all but one hotel in the town of Pitlochry. <laughs> now the Pitlochry fish ladder attracts 50,000 visitors each year and I understand the SSE is sponsoring tonight's event. It is planning a new visitor centre which could increase that to 100,000 visitors a year. Last week the, the Scottish Government, following the example of Tom Johnson, proposed to strengthen environmental protection in the part, the 31% of Scotland covered by our wildest, most scenic land, including having no wind farms in the 19% of Scotland covered by national parks and national scenic areas. We're determined, like Johnston was, to take environmental concerns seriously. That uh, pragmatism that Johnston shows and flexibility were evident in many ways. Although Johnston was pragmatic though, he was unwavering in his overall support for hydroelectric power. The most important way in which he's recurred consensus was by stressing at all times the amenities it would bring for all of the people in the north of Scotland. In one of his finest uh, parliamentary speeches in February 1943, he pointed out that these included the amenity of social security, the right to work, the amenity which derives from remuneration for a useful service to this world. The natural resources of the highlands and islands were to be harnessed 
so that the human resources of the Highlands and Islands could flourish. And that, I would submit, is the, the second lesson we can learn from the, the Hydro Revolution. Leadership is important, but it needs to be tied to a vision of how renewable energy can benefit the people of Scotland. We know that we need to harness our wind, wave, waves, tides to provide green energy. Climate change makes that even more of an imperative than it was in the 1940s. But as doing so, we should ensure that as far as possible, the turbines, the gearboxes, the blades which generate that clean energy are designed, made, installed, maintained, serviced by people and companies here in Scotland. Now that is starting to happen. Scottish Renewables are calculated 11,000 people are now employed in the renewable energy sector in Scotland. That number will grow and it will grow hugely significantly uh, with the offshore wind sector. We have estimated offshore wind alone could support more than 28,000 jobs over the next generation. Glasgow is Europe's leading centre for offshore wind research. The European Marine Energy Centre in Orkney is a leading centre for wave and tidal research. In 2011, SSE, the successor company to the North of Scotland Hydroelectricity Board, signed a, a Memorandum of Understanding with Dundee City Council, the Port of Dundee and Scottish Enterprise. The memorandum has the goal of establishing, just 20 miles down the Tay from here, a competitive supply chain for SSE's offshore wind development programme. Further north in the, the Cromarty Firth, the NIG yard is being transformed into the beating industrial heart of the, the Highlands once again. Global Energy Skills Academy expects to train some 3,000 apprentices and trainees over the next three years. At Mefflin Fife, Macrahanish and Argyll, Edie and Orkney, Renfrew and the Clyde, jobs are already being created by the new investment in renewable energy. Hydroelectric power brought electricity to the north of Scotland. The offshore wind, wave and tidal power has the potential to re-industrialise the coastline of Scotland. And with it, there's the prospect of skilled employment for tens of thousands of men and women in communities across the country. Hydroelectric power still has an important role to play in Scotland's transition to a low-carbon economy. It accounts for a substantial percentage of renewable energy produced in Scotland. And although most of the large-scale hydropower in Scotland has been built, the Scottish Government is determined to encourage new conventional hydropower schemes wherever possible. We recognised last year the particular influences and costs in affecting projects in Scotland. And that's why we maintained the, the level of support for large-scale hydroelectric schemes as, uh, as one uh, rock per megawatt hour at the same time when they were being cut elsewhere. I'm delighted that today SSE have announced their starting construction on the 7.5 megawatt Glasgow Hydro Scheme. Uh, which uh, Glasgow will be the highest, largest hydro scheme to be built in the UK in the last five years and the second largest conventional hydro scheme of the last 50 years. I think Tom Johnston would be rather pleased that this announcement coincides with this lecture. It will employ more than 100 people at the peak of construction activities. When it's built, it will supply enough electricity uh, to uh, meet the needs of approximately 10,000 households. SSE have pointed out this project couldn't have gone ahead without the continuing support for hydropower. It shows again that clear political support can lead to significant new investment. But the, there is a danger uh, to this uh, renewable uh, revolution, to the progress that we can make. There has to be 
a long-term commitment to the transformation of electricity generation. Piston Mason said in December that 70% of respondents to a survey thought that the speed of progress in the UK government policy has caused a delay in investment decisions for renewable energy. The Scottish Government have tried to counteract this wherever we can. The same survey showed that four out of five respondents saw Scotland as the best place in the UK to invest in renewable energy. The support for large-scale hydropower is just one example. We also showed leadership last year in deciding support for onshore wind, at a time when uncertainty over the UK government's position was harming the industry, when indeed a dispute between the Treasury and the Department for Energy and Climate Change had immobilised uh, policy positions. These uh, delays, the lack of commitment, the lack of uh, establishing uh, a clearly expressed and enunciated carbon target for a timescale in which investment decisions are made, they affect hydropower, they affect wind power, they affect marine energy. Pump storage is a good example. The pump storage schemes of Scotland are an essential part of the hydro configuration. They're even more essential to have sufficient pump storage capacity to, to match and meet and regulate the supply of intermittent electricity from wind power. It is a natural consequence of the expansion of wind energy, the energy storage has a high priority. Therefore, we might expect that policy can be configured in such a way uh, to allow the development of pump storage in alignment with the development of other renewable power. Small-scale hydro is another example. The Scottish Government have published two studies now which suggest we could have more than a gigawatt of small-scale hydropower could be economically viable. But feed-in tariffs may have hinder the development of such schemes. It's worth remembering that one of uh, Tom Johnson's most significant victories <coughs> came when electricity generation was uh, nationalised in 1947. There was a, a real danger that the North of Scotland the Hydro Electricity Board would be incorporated into what Johnson called, quote, some gigantic machine covering the whole country from the Shetlands to the Isle of Wight, unquote. Johnson believed that this would have caused the board's identity to be lost, its economic development and social improvement purposes for the Highlands submerged or cancelled, and possibly the last hope of stemming the depopulation of the crofting counties to be shattered. And that victory won by Tom Johnson in 1947 as chairman of the uh, Hydroelectric Board. Effectively, it has to be said, a self-appointed second chairman of the Hydroelectric uh, Board is an identity which is still recognised and celebrated by SSE today. The Hydro Board's success was due to its distinct relationship with the people it served. It doesn't mean that it operated in isolation, it sold surplus electricity to consumers in the south of Scotland and through the interconnector to England, just as surplus Scottish renewable electricity to future consumers will be sold to England and in the future hopefully to an integrated European energy market. And Johnson of course was someone who consistently supported the principle of home rule. At the very least, if you consider the achievements of Tom Johnson and the Hydro Board during and after the war, the success the Scottish Parliament has had of using its powers to develop renewable energy since 1999, it makes a pretty strong case for saying that the people best placed to take decisions on the use of Scotland's energy resources are people who live and work and understand the realities of Scotland, the realities and indeed the potential. 
Johnston <coughs> realized uh, on demitting office that the entrenched, the uh, huge, the considerable opposition to the development of the hydro resource had to be faced down. That the attempts to build parliamentary consensus had been successful. The attempts in legislative terms to have within the, the Act of Parliament uh, effective planning powers, which I tell you that any current Scottish government would envy in terms of its ability to get things done, uh, had created a framework. <coughs> but sooner or later, decisions had to be made. Uh, the uh, Lord Ayrley, who was the first uh, chairman of the hydroelectric company, had uh, resigned, according to Johnson's diaries, because he couldn't face the extent of the, the opposition and deeply often personally expressed, which was being poured upon him and his family as a result of his chairmanship of the board. Uh, and Johnson, at that stage in 1946, realised that a, a more uh, robust uh, position was required and leadership position in order to literally bulldoze his way through the opposition to affect the schemes. So the lesson of Johnston, in my estimation, <clears throat> is that uh, a certainty of purpose built on a, a vision of mobilizing the resources of the country and use them to the benefit of the people with a motivating influence, a pragmatism in terms of how it was deployed in terms of mobilizing support on a parliamentary basis for action, and then <clears throat> to be applied and to be carried through with a determination of purpose to face down opposition in the recognition and the knowledge that whatever the immediate lack of assent to schemes, that the decisions would be vindicated over a generation. And looking back, few could disagree that that vindication was there. Hydroelectricity <coughs> is one of the great industrial and economic success stories of post-war Scotland. In honouring that success today, we are celebrating the transformation of living standards that brought the opportunities for economic regeneration that it created. We are paying tribute to, to those who made it possible, to the hydro boys who worked in the schemes, the engineers, the politicians across the parties in the wartime coalition, uh, and of course, above all, the instigator of the, of the uh, campaign and carried into action, Tom Johnson himself. We're acknowledging that hydropower will be an important part of Scotland's renewable energy future, as well as an inspiration from our past. But most of all, perhaps, we are recognising a principle which was captured in the Hydroelectric Development Scotland Act, which is still motivate us today, the principle that the most important aspect of mobilising support for these schemes was that resources of Scotland should be used sustainably for the benefit of communities and individuals across the country. And by upholding that principle, we have the opportunity, in my estimation, to reindustrialize the coastline of Scotland. We can create the amenities which Tom Johnson valued so highly, social security, the right to work, the amenity which derives from remuneration from that useful service to the world. We can ensure that the second renewables revolution of Scotland matches, indeed surpasses, the achievement of the first. And we can live up to the, the challenge and the inspiring legacy of Tom Johnston. Thank you very much. <laughs>